Welcome to Dan's Talks. My guest today is Richard Kirschenbaum, who's uh, written a new book that I'm going to ask him about. But his real-life job is uh, advertising, which we will get to later. Tell me a little bit about the book first. Sure. Well, thank you again. It's great to see you. I've always been a fan of you and the paper. And uh, really, kind of, uh, every time I came out to the Hamptons, I'd always love to a copy it made me feel like i was in the hamptons right <laughs> so it wasn't the hamptons if it wasn't dan's paper i can tell you that anyway um shifting to places a lot of new yorkers are going right now um miami the book is called north bay road and it debuts on the pub date is may 16th of this month and very excited it's getting a lot of attention the novel is uh set it's a uh a during covid love story and the reviews have been, you know, I'm, I'm really very proud that it's being so well received. And thank you for having me on. What is it about? You said it's a love story. Is it also a mystery? It is. It is. It has, um, it's some, it's, it's a combination of certain genres. It's about a, uh, a woman who's about 30 years old, who's a celebrity stylist and her career's really come to an end during COVID. She's trapped in a small apartment on the Lower East Side. She can't see her boyfriend, who's a COVID doctor, because her mother's going through cancer treatments. And so she's really trapped uh, with, you know, her job Her job has really come to an end. And she's not used to spending the entire winter in New York in her freezing little shoebox of an apartment. And one day she gets a call from a lawyer and she declines to call the lawyer back, thinking, you know, she owes back taxes for a shoot she did in Miami. Um, her mother calls and uh, she finds out she's been left this Mediterranean crumbling mansion on Miami's famed North Bay Road. And uh, it's uh, at first they think it's a scam, but it's not. We have no idea. She has no idea why this old socialite uh, Elsa Sloan Barrett left her the, the home. Uh, she doesn't she's never met her. She's never heard of her. And when she goes down to Miami, she's given a diary and the di and so the book really takes place through the eyes of Elsa and her diary in the 19. 40s, 30s, 40s, as well as uh, current day, go, switches back and forth. And then next door to the crumbly mansion is a very modern mansion, and in moves a Colombian reggaeton rock star, and yes. all hell breaks loose. So it's a, uh, you know, it's a really fun, rollicking read, from what I've been told. And um, the um, I'm even more thrilled that on Goodreads, uh, which is all independent reviews, uh, the initial reviews has put the book at 4.2 stars, which uh, when I look at some of the other great classic books like The Great Gatsby, it's higher, you know. <laughs> so I never thought I'd be, I'd have a book that was uh, rated at this point higher than The Great Gatsby. So I'm very pleased. Let me ask you, how did, how did this start? I know you did an earlier book and you can tell me about that, but how did you decide that you wanted to write books rather than your career, which you started way back uh, and have kept going at an ad agency in New York City, which is very prosperous, which you still run. What decided you that you'd like to move into another world here? Well, you know, I view it all the same. It's sort of like a virtuous circle of creativity. And I never viewed, um, I was always a copywriter and, uh, you know, by trade. And so a lot of the people that I know have been mentors to me in the business um, have gone on to do some great writing. I mean, the late Phil Dusenberry wrote The Natural, 
Um, and he, you know, spent some time, I spent some time with Phil when he was alive, may he rest in peace. Also, I couldn't have had a better guide to all this with um, my creative director, uh, executive creative director at Jay Wilcher Thompson being none other than James Patterson, who is by oh, far the yeah. most uh, successful author in, in the United States, if not the world. And so James uh, was my uh, executive creative director. He hired me when I was very young. And um, it's, I, I think James, uh, you know, really set the world on fire and certainly uh, was an inspiration to me. So I thought, listen, you know, I may not be as successful as James Patterson, but, you know, hopefully a pretty good writer and, uh, and kept, keep writing. So I love to do that. Talk about the agency that you founded back back in the day. Yes. So when I was in my mid-20s, I founded an agency, which I sold to a public company called Kirschenbaum Bond and Partners. Uh, by the time we sold it, it was the largest independent agency in the United States. And we, you know, were known for uh, well-known campaigns for Snapple, made from, you know, made, Wendy the Snapple Lady, made from Best Stuff on Earth, to Target. Uh, uh, bring Target uh, some fame, Hennessy, Morish, and Don, BMW, things like that. When we sold the agency, I stayed on as chairman. And then two years later, I founded my second act, which is called SWAT by Kirschenbaum. And it's a company that invents and reinvents brands, of which we uh, many of our clients give us equity now in those brands. I also have a fund called SWAT Equity where we invest in brands. And what I like to say about my business is after all these years is I, you know, lucky enough that I work with the world's most interesting clients and I get to invest in the world's most interesting companies. And so, and I get to write. So it's a pretty damn good gig. I have to tell you that. What I read is about something about guerrilla advertising, which they, um, they, they said you were instrumental in bringing into the fray back in the day. Tell us yes. a little bit. Well, I think that was really interesting because we sort of bridged the gap between the Mad Men era and the digital era. And so we really did at the in those days invent some really fun things. We in, really invented street stenciling in the advertising business. We had this small client, Bamboo Lingerie, and we did street stencils that said, from here, it looks like you could use some new underwear, bamboo, signed Bamboo <laughs> Lingerie, things like that. But of course, you know, other people try to rip us off, but they didn't understand they had to use washable paint. So they were arrested. Uh, <laughs> and then we um, invented uh, for Snapple, we, we did a launch of a, a specific flavor called Mango Madness. And we stickered hundreds of thousands of mangoes with stickers like the Chiquita Banana stickers that said now available in Snapple. And so a lot of the guerrilla advertising that we did was pre TikTok and um, Instagram, but got an enormous word of mouth. And so I would say that we sort of invented word of mouth advertising. Uh, our first ad many years ago for the, uh, which was a legendary ad for uh, Kenneth Cole, uh, it was the first ad not to even ever feature a product. So it was during the Amel DeMarcos shoe spree years where the ad said, you know, Amel DeMarcos bought 2,700 pairs of shoes, she could have at least had the courtesy to buy a pair of ours. And it was signed by, you know, Kenneth. So I think that, you know, we were, we pioneered the use of alternate thinking. And, um, and I still use that to this day. So, you know, I always like to use high concept as a way to be involved in the projects I work on. 
So if I feel I've nothing I've ever done, even in terms of the writing, I feel has been done before. If it has been done before, I don't really want to do it. So it's, you know, every concept is new and different. I live on Fifth Avenue by the Met. And they some, somebody did uh, about a year or two ago some stenciling in front of the Met, which resulted on the sidewalk about a particular person. And I don't remember what it said, but it changed things in some way in politics or right. uh, and it stayed there for a while because they didn't use paint. Right. Well, that's you can't really do that, you know, and not face criminal charges, you know. So right. I think that in many ways. Um, Tell me about how, how you came to come out to the Hamptons and when you first came and what do you think about it? OK, so my first school trip was to the Montauk Lighthouse when I was seven years old. And um, I think I've been coming out to the Hamptons ever since, you know. I, uh, you know, it's been a long journey in those days when I graduated college, you know, we used to uh, do things called share houses, if people remember that, right? And for those of us who didn't have parents who had a house in the Hamptons. There was uh, a center of that was I'm against it. Yes. And I've, I've, so I've, I at first really tried many different towns all through the Hamptons, you know, renting uh, and buying, you know, homes to see whether or not we found our place. So, you know, whether it was uh, uh, West Hampton, Quag, Amagansett, uh, you know, places like that, Bridgehampton, you know, and then we finally um, bought a, you know, uh, we, we rented and then bought a home in uh, Sagaponic and um, it's quite glorious, uh, you know, to this day, despite the overbuilding. As I like to say, I had a column many years ago in the New York Observer, and one of them was called, you know, I I mean, I came up with the term for Sag Pond, and the title was On Goldman Pond, oh, nice. <laughs> so, which was because of all the executives who, you know, have moved into the area and um, have changed the, you know, the dynamics. But for the most part, it's still you can't beat the beautiful uh, pink streak sunsets and, you know, light and air. Yeah. What do you like to do when you're out here? Do you have family? Yes, I have three children, my wife and I. Um, you know, I have to tell you, my favorite thing to do is, and it's, it's really a result of the heavy traffic, avoiding the heavy traffic. I love getting my bike with a basket, like in the Wizard of Oz, you know, and I, <laughs> and I um, go the back roads and I go to the farm stands and buy fresh produce and come home. And, 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 you know, it's really a wonderful thing. And to this day, you know, that's one of the most amazing things about the Hamptons is that you can still have these local farm stands and, and get, you know, beautiful produce. And it really saved us during the, uh, when we we're out there during COVID lockdown, you know, and just gave a certain sense of normalcy, you know, and then from there, because it was so wonderful when the weather started to change in the Hamptons and it started to get cold, I felt that I I just couldn't weather the storm in New York in the way that I'd want to. So we were lucky enough to be able to, I, I came up with this idea that wouldn't it be wonderful if we could find a place in Miami? So um, I went online and found a, a wonderful home on North Bay Road. And we, I surprised my family with it. And despite the horrors of COVID and um, how difficult it was for everybody, 
it was a really interesting time because the family came back together. A lot of uh, my friend, my kids' friends stayed with us. And then that sparked the idea for the book. You did a prior book, didn't you? Was a first yes, I've book. done a number of books, but the first novel that I did, which was before North Bay Road, which came out two years ago, is called Rouge. And it was about the, the women, mostly the women and some of the men who founded the cosmetics industry. And there'd never really been a novel about that. Um, I think because a writing a historical novel is very difficult with the research and B, in order to do a book about the cosmetics industry, you really need to actually have to name your products. And um, so I'll, I'll give you an example. So uh, one of the uh, plots in the book was trying, these women were racing to develop the world's first uh, mainstream mascara. So you have to have a name for the mascara. So, you know, like Great Lash already exists, you know? so. Given my naming expertise and what I do in my field, I was I needed a name as an example for the product that honestly sounded of the period, but wasn't taken. And I probably had, I mean, it was it took that alone took an enormous amount of work to find a name. And the name I came up with was Lashmatic, uh, which I trademarked. But again, one of the reasons why I don't think people are able to do a book about the cosmetics industry, it's just too hard to really source the material, understand how uh, you have to become an expert in terms of how cosmetics were originally made. You know, the original uh, recipes for mascara were made out of coal and even some lye, which, you know, blinded some people around the turn of the century. So, you know, I would say all of that research is something one has to do if one's going to write a novel. And so seriously, the idea also of Miami has an enormous amount of research about Miami's history, you know, in addition to the actual uh, characters in the book. And Miami is a character in the book. Oh, uh, it's a person's name or the, or the place, you mean? Miami Beach, yeah, is a character, meaning that the, the, the idea of Miami and the throughout the ages and, you know, from the turn of the century on is its own character, its 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 own living and breathing uh, interaction in the book. So we find out a lot about Miami. There's a real connection, as I'm you may know, between Miami Beach and Montauk. Yes, there is because of Carl Fisher. And uh, they recently renamed the plaza in the center of town after him. Yeah, I mean Carl Fisher was an interesting man. Unfortunately, uh, his legacy is tarnished a bit by being a racist, but, you know, I think that, uh, which is in the book as well, but yeah. I mean, he certainly had a great eye for uh, development. And um, I think one of the things I'm most proud of in the book is how people were treated in the 1930s and 40s, you know, and how Miami especially has morphed into a very inclusive melting pot, which is really one of the most wonderful things. But, you know, the sad truth is that Miami was anti-Semitic and anti-Black for up until the 1940s. In fact, most African-Americans had to leave working on the beach, couldn't stay over, even the performers, and had to go to a place called Overtown. They had to go over town to sleep at segregated hotels. And I think these things are really important to remember and understand, and people shouldn't forget their history. You know, I mean, I think that's a important part. And so the the, the brilliance of Miami 
And the most wonderful thing about Miami to this day is the idea that it's become this incredible ethnic melting pot of all different people and the Latin Americans and, and the Cubans and the rich history of Miami and, and uh, you know, from, you know, older, you know, the older Waspi community to the Jewish community there. I mean, it's all merged into this wonderful place. It's, that's one of the reasons why it is one of the most dynamic cities in America currently. Will you be having uh, any readings or uh, book signings in the Hamptons? I, I'm starting to plan that right now. I will have an invitation for you for my book party in New York, but we'll talk about that after the, after this as well. But yes, you know, I'm planning on doing some um, press on this in different locations. Have you decided on another project, a book project? Oh, yes. I'm currently, I mean, like what I like to say uh, to my friends who all, you know, are in their golf uh, phases of now pickleball, I said, like, you guys like to play golf and pickleball. I like to write. So, you know, that's my golf. And so, yeah, so I do write every day and I'm close to, uh, I'm, I'm working on actually two new novels. I'm very fast. It's one of those weird, really weird things where I think being in the advertising business has really honed my skills and working for people like James and, you know, the masters of, uh, of the, of the industry. You know, my first boss in the business was this wonderful woman. I don't know. You may have known her, uh, Lois Corey. Uh, she had an agency called Corey Kane partners, but Lois took me on. I'm the first generation of men to have worked for the first generation of female executives. And she was originally a comedy writer for the show of shows for Sid Caesar with Woody Allen. And so she really also helped mentor me. And I was very, very lucky, may she rest in peace, to have her as a mentor and a figure in my life. And she really helped me with my writing skills. You know, I'll never forget when I came to quit working for her after a period of time. She was putting lipstick on in a mirror and she just looked at me when I handed in my resignation. And all she said was, well, the mother is always the last to know. <laughs> so she was fantastic. And so I've been very lucky that I've had been surrounded by such giving, warm and wonderful people for my career. Well, um, we've kind of run out of time. So uh, I will bid you farewell and I will see you wherever you have a book party and maybe in New York. And uh, yes, I'm well, going to, you'll be receiving an invitation from me and I hope to see you there. Okay. Thanks for, thanks very much for being thanks, here. Thanks Dan. It was real pleasure. And you're an icon. An icon. That's like a Chrysler. <laughs> you are. <laughs> thanks again. It was a real pleasure. Thank you. Bye.